Welcome to From Balloons to Drones, the official podcast of Balloons2Drones.com, where we explore the development of military air power from the earliest days of flight to today. I'm your host, Mike Hankins. And I'm your host, Brian Lashley. And our guest today is Robert Farley. Uh, Dr. Farley is an assistant professor at the Patterson School as part of the University of Kentucky. Uh, received his PhD from the University of Washington Department of Political Science in 2004. Uh, he is not only a respected scholar and author, but a long-term friend of ours on Twitter and someone who has been around uh, the field of air power for some time now. Rob, thanks for coming on the show. It's a delight to be here, gentlemen. And so your new book is called Patents for Power, Intellectual Property Law, and the Diffusion of Military Technology, which I think is the first time we haven't had an air power specific book on the show. But tell us a little bit about Patents for Power. So um, Patents for Power um, was a, a, it is in line with some of my previous work in the sense that it's about the diffusion of military technology. But it's a little bit different because uh, there's more of a focus on patent law and intellectual property protection, which is not something that people often talk about with respect to the defense sector. The genesis of the project was something like six or seven years ago. And six and seven years ago, really nobody was talking about um, intellectual property and military technology and diffusion. Now, um, a lot of people are talking about it and there's a lot of reports out there. And so it's it's more part of the conversation. But essentially uh, what the book argues is that it's very hard for us to understand two kinds of phenomena. The first being the innovation of military technology in a domestic context and the second being the diffusion of military technology across the international system without taking into account how states and international organizations go about protecting intellectual property. And to some extent, this is a recent phenomenon because a lot of the big institutions and structures that protect intellectual property are fairly recent in their origin. But you can also find uh, lots of incidences where um, states have tried to protect intellectual property or have used intellectual property law to drive uh, military technological innovation back to the 17th, 18th, 19th century. And so that's what the book looks into, right? How the sector of law that is normally associated with uh, very civilian applications actually matters for military technology. So we're going to get into this as we go along here, but tell us, give us a reason why those who are interested in air power or study air power history should definitely pick this book up. Yeah. So, um, I mean, there, there are a few different reasons. And and one of the things I do uh, that I wanted to do in the book was to tell some vignettes. So I open each chapter with a vignette, a story of how intellectual property is mattering for a um, particular kind of technology. And, and most of those examples are aviation-themed examples. But to throw one out that I didn't use in the book, but I've touched on in other places, some people will be familiar with the Wright Brothers Patent War, which I read a little, a little bit about a, uh, at a website that you guys may, fo- may follow called the Hushkin. Um, where there's a lot of interviews of pilots and so forth. And it's a story that's told in a few places, in books and so forth. This question is asked, you know, why did the United States, which essentially invented the airplane, and I know this is a a challenge for Europeans to acknowledge that, but how come you have this economic giant, technology giant that invents the airplane, but by 1917, when we become engaged in the actual First World War, um, the United States is is basically incapable of producing any airplane in its uh, domestic aviation uh, industry. And the 
answer to that, or at least a huge part of the answer to that, is that the Wright brothers were, if not patent trolls, at least extremely uh, aggressive with respect to their patent rights, where they were essentially arguing that anything that uh, moved a wing or changed the shape of a wing in any way was theirs. And so uh, they were owed licensing fees, everything else, from Glenn Curtis and from any other domestic producer. And, uh, you know, accounts differ about how important this really was, but most of the European countries negotiated with the Wright brothers to license or purchase the patents. So the Wright brothers did patent things in, in Europe, and European governments were sensible about how to approach that. But in the United States, that approach didn't work, and it really slowed the development of aviation technology in the United States, and meant that essentially the United States, the Army Air Service, I can't remember exactly what the, it was the Signal Corps, and then I forget what it was in 1917, but is going to war with British and Italian aircraft rather than American-developed and American-produced aircraft. Um, and that's, you know, that's a pretty big story in aviation history, and it's a pretty big story for people who study military technology. And so, yeah, it's, it's a really good example of why patent law matters for uh, military technology and for aviation in particular. Yeah, I think it was, if I remember correctly, it was Curtis who said that if anyone jumped in the air, the Wright brothers would sue them. Right. To what degree, what, what were the differences there between Europe and the United States in terms of why companies in Europe were able to use that technology, but it had such a hindering effect here? So my my understanding is that the big difference is one that you know you would sort of acknowledge like a a realist in international relations would the European countries just had a lot of incentive right away to solve the problems uh, associated with the patents right and so they gave the Wright brothers what they wanted it was also harder for the Wright brothers to enforce their claims because they weren't there I mean one of them was already dead by that that time but they weren't there and so it was harder to push sort of really hard I think that there was really bad feeling between Curtis and the Wright brothers uh, by that point too but eventually the I mean, in the United States, this is solved by government action. You know, like it creates a patent pool. And once people really realize, oh, hey, we will need airplanes, then the government steps in and that drives innovation. And that just happened earlier in Europe. Yeah, it's kind of a shame you, you didn't use that vignette because that's really interesting. Uh, but let's talk about one of the vignettes you did use. Uh, and this has to be one of my my favorite stories in the history of air power. Uh, and you just call it stealing a bomber. So tell tell us what goes on there. Yeah. So uh, you know one of the one of the stories we we are often going to tell about World War II is that, um, and I talk about this a little bit in my other book, which you're familiar with, Grounded, is that the United States spent a, a, just a colossal amount of money developing the atomic bomb, and somehow spent even more money developing the bomber that could deliver the atomic bomb, right, the B-29 uh, Super Fortress. Now it turns out that I think three uh, super fortresses, after doing bombing runs over Japan, are damaged in some way or have some sort of mechanical defect, and they have to land in the Soviet Union. And so uh, when they land in the Soviet Union, of course, things go south fairly rapidly uh, between uh, the United States and the USSR. The USSR isn't even at war um, when the bombers, uh, war with Japan when the bombers land in the USSR. And so uh, what the Soviets did, the Soviets are lacking a large modern four-engine bomber. It really doesn't take them very long to take these examples of the B-29s they have apart and do just a really fabulous job of reverse engineering this incredibly uh, complicated, incredibly expensive bomber that that is effectively the class of global bombers, at least for, you know, the period 1945 to 1947 inclusive. And so uh, that's what they do. Um, and it becomes, I, I believe it's the Tupolev 4, the Tu-4, it becomes its designation. And that becomes the uh, sil 
Soviet Union's uh, main uh, bomber for the very early part of the Cold War. And there's you know, there are some stories about it that are um, that are not accurate. Like so one of the bombers had like three bullet holes in it, and some people have said, well, and the Soviets replicated those three bullet holes because they didn't know any better. And that's apparently not true. There are parts of it that are interesting because you know the Soviets were using metric tools, right? So they were using systems of tools that actually made it difficult, and they ran into problems in terms of the copying to actually be able to rebuild, uh, reconstruct, and then mass produce this bomber. And the funniest part, of course, is that they then send this to the Chinese. And so really, the last B-29s that are in operational shape and they're used for any kind of operational purpose are used by the, the People's Liberation Army Air Force, where they're still being flown into the 1970s. And apparently, there are still examples of those at aviation museums in China. Yeah, this story actually has longer legs than just that, because this is an example where the Soviet Union, you know, carbon copies the B-29. Now, aircraft develop along similar lines, regardless of country. Uh, but what you see is you go down through the history of the Cold War. Uh, there's a lot of the United States pointing and waving its fingers at the Soviet Union saying, oh, you copied the B-1, oh, you copied the space shuttle, oh, you copied this, you copied that. And it's not really true. Just the generations of aircraft uh, happen to look alike. But there's a shining example of, yeah, they, they did at least in one instance copy our, our aircraft. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the other one that people often talk about is, uh, I think, the the designation that they have is the T-4, which is basically their version of the Valkyrie, although it's it's smaller than the Valkyrie and it's not quite as fast. But, you know, there's lots of interesting stuff. You know, there's too much to say about the Valkyrie, but uh, but I think there's one or two examples of that left at uh, Soviet aviation or Russian aviation museums as well. Well, I'm thinking of the Sidewinder missile as well, which is captured and then copied. And uh, right. I don't know how true this is, but According to some sources, they say it's copied so slavishly that the model number, the parts numbers on the on the parts are the same. Well, and it, and it's just as effective at the very beginning of its service in uh, Soviet service as it was in American, which uh, you know is obviously a problem. But but yeah, no, it's uh, the, I mean I think that the T the the Tupolev four is is really one of the most successful examples of you know classic reverse engineering. You know, it's one that's not necessarily sort of deeply affected by uh, Soviet intellectual property law, which a lot of people think is like a contradiction in terms, but it's not in mod in the modern context. Arguably, Boeing would would be able to pursue a pretty aggressive legal strategy, especially uh, if the Soviets tried to export um, any of those to any country that had any kind of trade agreement or intellectual property agreement with the United States. So let's, uh, one of the great things about this book is you don't focus exclusively on the United States. I mean, this is really a, a hundred thousand foot view of intellectual property and the diffusion of military technology, uh, but they're all interrelated. So tell us a little bit about uh, China and intellectual property. Yeah. So there's, there's some, there's some really good work on uh, China and intellectual property. And, and really when you talk about China, it's, it's really useful to talk about the USSR at the same time, because people, and I, and I talk about both of these countries, I have a basically a comparative chapter in the book, talk about China, USSR, and South Korea. The USSR, you know, as I alluded to earlier, actually had pretty standard intellectual property law based on the standards, um, the international standards of the time, because the Imperial Russia was signed on to all the major 
copyright and so forth agreements. You had structures of intellectual property law that were put in place in the 1920s. You had uh, Soviet design bureaus and so forth used patent systems in order to protect themselves, and especially in the aviation sector, because it's not as if anywhere that basically a factory just builds an airplane, right? It has to be integrated with all kinds of components, and that's been the case since the 1920s. And so the way that Soviet design bureaus and factories would protect themselves in the system was to generate lots and lots of patents that would then ensure uh, that they had a place at the table technologically. And so the patents were sort of an internal currency for a lot of different Soviet factories. The big difference is, of course, that you couldn't really develop any sort of, raise any sort of private capital. And so the patents couldn't be used for, you know, the classic sense that you'd use them in the West. In China, there was no real history of intellectual property, either in terms of sort of the, the cultural understanding of intellectual property that you know, goes back as far as the 15th or 16th century in the West. And uh, nationalist China and imperial China never really, I mean, there are a couple agreements that they signed on to, but it's not really, even really obvious that they understood what they were doing, right? Why anyone would care about this intellectual property thing. And so when you get to the People's Republic of China, there's a hostility to the notion of intellectual property in the same sense as there's a hostility to uh, private property more generally. And intellectual property is seen as a way of Western powers to sort of impose their understanding and impose their will upon developing countries. And so in the early parts, uh, you know, first 30 or so years of the People's Republic of China, the defense industry, especially on the, on the conventional side of the defense industry, tries to work without any kind of patent or uh, trade secret law. And it doesn't work, right? It doesn't work because what they find and sort of what looking back um, scholars have found is that none of the factories, none of the labs, none of the design bureaus were willing to talk to one another because they didn't have any assurance that the stuff that they invented would um, not be copied by another state-owned producer or state-owned laboratory. And so you didn't have a conversation between different kinds of inventors and different kinds of producers because there was no protection for what any of those uh, any of those guys were putting together. And so it takes until much later that you, you begin to see the domestic development of a system of intellectual property that at least allows different kinds of labs, different kinds of inventors, innovators in China and the military sphere to start talking to one another and to be able to start taking advantage of stuff that's happening in the civilian field, right? Because, you know, eventually of the development of civilian enterprise. But civilian enterprise in China in the 1980s and 1990s, just like anywhere else, they only want to share something if they know they're going to be protected, right? And so you need some kind of system of intellectual property protection just to generate any kind of dual use, to capture any of the gains of dual use technology. And so that's a big part of the Chinese story, right? that um, IP law really enables a lot of domestic innovation once they finally adopt it. You know, as, as an American, and one of the great things about the air power community is we're really an international community, but I'll be the first to admit that I'm as guilty of anyone else as, as tending to think that things are only ever done to us, right? Which is probably the most ironic American statement ever made. Uh, but one of the things you do talk about in the book is that China is not only stealing, uh, and we'll get to this in a little bit, from us, but they, they steal kind of heavily from the USSR. Yeah, I mean, this happens at a few different times in the, the Soviet-Chinese relationship. The, the MiG-21 that becomes, I think, the J-7 um, is a really complicated case um, because there's a lot to suggest the Chinese were in the process of stealing it and the Russians realized it. And then they decided just to sort of give them a lot of the advanced, uh, a lot of the technology that was associated with the MiG-21. Although there's also an argument that they poisoned pilled that. 
right, that there was uh, something wrong with early J7s based on the uh, the readouts and the blueprints that the Soviets were willing to supply. And this happened even after um, the Sino-Soviet split. And we found out about a lot of those after the Sino-US rapprochement when, when we got J7s from them and found out by comparing them to the MiG-21s we got from other people that there was something wrong. And then sort of later ones, the, the Chinese do better based on our feedback. But yeah, the, the more recent one, and this is, of course, really interesting, is the intellectual property theft that happens after the collapse of the Soviet Union, when the Soviets, you know, they, the Russians are looking for any kind of currency that they can get. The Russian defense industry is in a really bad place, and it's just sell the Chinese everything. The Chinese are buying, let's sell to the Chinese. But curiously, there's a huge lull in that relationship, right? There's a lot of purchase in the 1990s, but then it really bottoms out in the 2000s, and there was always questions about why that was. And the answer was, the Russians came to the realization that the Chinese were, were stealing and reverse engineering a lot of the technology, especially on the aviation, and especially with regard to the Sukhoi 27 flanker, the Chinese were just openly violating all kinds of agreements that they had made to protect the Russian technology, to not reproduce Russian technology. And it caused a huge problem that really slowed down the Russia-China arms trade for, for uh, at least a decade, possibly up to 15 years. And there have been other cases. I mean, the Russians still don't fully trust the Chinese. And so with like the Armada fighting vehicle and so forth, there's been a lot of res resistance in the Russian defense industry to selling the Chinese anything that is uh, particularly modern because of this assessment that the Chinese are just going to take it and then they're going to reproduce it on their own. And then they're going to be selling to the same people, right? Because that's that's sort of the other part of this, that the Chinese equipment is going to be cheaper and it's going to be on the international arms market and it's going to be just stolen Russian intellectual property that is then crowding the Russians out of the arms market. Is there any sort of operational effect from all of this? And I'm thinking mostly about Vietnam and, you know, the selling of MiGs to the North Vietnamese through China. How is that relationship being handled? Is that something that the Soviet Union wanted to happen and they wanted to funnel MiGs in that way? Or is that China's decision and the Soviet Union has, is left out of that negotiation? Or, or how is that working? You know, that's a great question. There's somebody here who's written a, a book about air power in the Vietnam War that might be able to answer that, but I'm but I'm, I'm actually not sure. But I mean, I, I think that, you know, a lot of that just comes down to the really difficult and weird relationship between China and the Soviet Union during the 1960s. Um, but yeah, no, I'm not sure. Right. I mean, anytime you export arms, right, the, the, the arms export decision has to be governed by a lot of questions, right? And one of those is, is the person I'm selling to capable of copying my stuff? And is the person I'm selling to going to copy my stuff? And in a lot of cases, in the case of Vietnam, I mean, the Soviets, you know, sell them whatever they want because they can't reproduce it. In the case of, say, the United States and the Republic of Korea, all the way down until this very moment right now, it's like, well, anything we sell them, they really are smart enough to turn it around and they really are interested in developing their own export, industry, defense export industry. And so we have to be really careful about what we actually, what kind of technology we actually let them have. That leads into a really good question just about because the U.S. does sell a lot of weaponry, particularly aircraft, to a lot of its allies around the world. What are the big issues with that that intellectual property can really speak to in a specific way in terms of specific aircraft? So, uh, I mean, one of this comes up with the sale of the F-35 to, um, I mean, the, the F-35 is really the big elephant in the room with respect to, to both technology and, and sales. And the United States has done a pretty good job. You know, if, and there's a little bit of this research in the book. 
look, but we've also done some other outside research. You know, who exactly does the United States sell arms to? And one of the answers to that question is countries that are absolutely crystal in terms of their uh, intellectual property protection, right? And those happen to be generally are sort of the countries you would expect the U.S. to sell arms to anyway. But with respect to the F-35, right? I mean, as you guys know, the, the F-35 project is, is one of the most complex supply chains uh, in the entire world. And that supply chain is not a uh, is not simply a domestic supply chain. It's an international supply chain. In other, in European countries, as in the United States, you know, big defense producers, they aren't really, they don't really produce it anymore. They're systems aggregators, which means that really what you're doing on an international scale is carrying out negotiations between a state, between a dozen different private companies, and then a hundreds of subcontractors who are all producing the parts that are going to go into this F-35. And since the selling point of the F-35 for a lot of countries is that we are transferring technology to you, you know, trans tra technology transfers that are tightly regulated by export control and intellectual property protection rules. But essentially, you know, what we're giving away in a lot of cases are trade secrets and so forth, right? So we are conveying trade secrets and industrial technologies to the countries who are participating in the F-35. And what they are getting is this technology and they then have to buy F-35s. But we benefit from them buying them because economies of scale and whatever else. And they benefit from having these technologies. And this does come up, right? I mean, there are concerns, again, you know, largely with the Republic of Korea, but also a little bit with Japan about what they're actually doing. And so there was a famous case um, where Lockheed Martin wanted to sell these 25 technologies that are associated with stealth to the Republic, I think at KAI, the, the, the Republic of or Korean Aerospace Industries. And the State Department said, well, you can have 22, but you can't have these other three, right? Because they're going to take these other three and they're going to integrate into some other plane. And then uh, they're going to sell that plane as a competitor to the F-30. So anytime you have a negotiation between two technology firms and anytime you have a negotiation between a technology firm and a government, IP is there. IP law is there. It has to be there because everybody in that arrangement has to be protected. And so you have to have law firms that specialize in it. You have to have international law firms that specialize in it. And so... You know, the F-35 is like this gigantic legal mess that, you know, we have to sort through on a daily basis to make sure that everybody's interests are protected. With the F-35, do you think that IP law is having a limiting effect or a kind of expanding effect in the current environment? I I'm thinking of like the last 20, maybe 30 years where we have a much smaller number of larger contractors working on these airplanes, but that they're all working together. Like on the F-35, you have so many different contractors doing pieces of it that have to coordinate. How is IP law affecting how they're able to work together? Is that hindering things? Is it helping things? That's a really interesting question. I'd never quite thought about it in these terms. But what I would say is that the international aspect and even the domestic aspect of the F-35 is difficult to imagine without the degree of sophisticated intellectual property protection, the degree to which domestic and international intellectual property protection has become more sophisticated in the past two or three decades. And I mean, it's important to note, too, that that this is not just a defense story, right? I mean, if you look at why intellectual property law has become more complicated and why it's become more important to countries over the past 30 years, this is an agribusiness and pharma story, right? It's agribusiness and pharma that's really driving the, uh, the development of intellectual property law at the, at the international level. And the defense sector is really sort of behind 
behind on that in a lot of ways. But to answer your question, I'd say, yeah, it is hard to imagine that there would be enough security with respect to the technologies that are associated with the F-35 and enough confidence in all of the international partners without the really sophisticated IP tools that have become, you know, something we take for granted, both in the defense sector and, and in other places. There's the one other F-35 story that I thought we should talk about. So, you know, the, the other story about the F-35 and especially the F-35B, right? And, uh, you know, the F-35B is becoming an absolutely critical component of naval aviation all around the world. And this is a story that is in the shadows, right? And we may never have the full story of how it happens. But, you know, a lot of people noticed when uh, the F-35B, the Stovall version of it, comes out that it bears an immense similarity to uh, the Yak-141, right? Which is, uh, so the, essentially the turbojet that, that lifts the aircraft is the same in the F-35B as it was in the Yak-141. And there are stories out there, and I cite some of them, but it's hard to find scholarly resources and really sort of good uh, information on this. But there's good reason to believe that Lockheed Martin was fully aware of what was happening in the Yak-141 and that yeah, that uh, Lockheed Martin was interested. And so there there may have been some transfer of technology between uh, Yak-11 or people around Yak-11 in the early 1990s when the Soviet Union fell apart. And that then becomes sort of the core appeal of the F-35B, the Stovall version of it. And that's, that's an unusual story. Like, it usually doesn't work that the United States is going out there and acquiring Russian technology. You know, that's the story the movies tell with, like, Firefox and uh, Hunt for Red October. But this is one where it actually looks like it may have happened. But again, the documentation on it is is really kind of weak about what exactly the F-35B owes to the Yak-141. Yeah, we could probably sit here and tell stories world over talking about the the stories that come out of the shadows, right? The stories about stealth diffusion and all other aspects there. So, but that's that's really interesting. Excellent. Uh, well, Bob, thank you very much for, for joining us. And for those of you listening, the book is Patents for Power, Intellectual Property, Law, and the Diffusion of Military Technology, authored by Robert M. Farley and Davida H. Isaacs. And it is, if nothing else, a very interesting book. I found myself writing interesting and important, which are kind of my two buzzwords that you'll find in the marginalia of, of many of my books. Awesome. Well, thanks. It's been a delight, guys. Awesome. So where else can we find you online or on social media? Uh, you can find my Twitter at Dr. Farrells, um, uh, D-R-F-A-R-L-S. Um, and I blog at uh, Lawyers, Guns, and Money, lawyersgunsandmoneyblog.com. Cool. Brian, where are you at online? So you can find me uh, online at Brian Lastly on Twitter or at my website, www.brianlastly.com. All right, thanks. And I'm on Twitter at Hankenstein with a T-I-E-N. And I'm on Instagram at HankensMW. All of us are online at BalloonsToDrones.com. Our music was created by Jason Davis at Digital Fish Media, which you can find on Facebook at DigitalFishMedia.org. If you'd like to send us an email, please visit BalloonsToDrones.com contact. And if you'd like to submit an article for publication or do a book review for us, please go to BalloonsToDrones.com slash submissions. Thank you, and we'll see you next time.